Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to podcast number 39. Shane and I are fired up to be with you this month, and we have some great questions ahead of us. Just as a quick reminder to please submit your questions and let us know if they're urgent, because we always make sure to include the urgent ones as a part of every month's podcast. And so we are going to dive right into question number one. Hello, Shane. Thank you for the continued opportunities to learn from you and the wonderful inner circle. The knowledge and resources are invaluable. I have an upcoming night exterior scene in a short film where a character standing on train tracks turns around to reveal an oncoming train, probably within 50 to 100 feet of the character. I've watched your car headlight gag, which is very helpful upping the ante, can you discuss tips and recommendations for pulling off a nighttime train headlight gag? Our shot is likely over the shoulder of the character and wanting a powerful headlight look within a small budget. Thank you, Miles Smythe. And can I just say before uh, Shane answers this headlight gag question, we love your name, Miles, because our son is named Miles and you spell it the same way. So we're super excited. Okay, Shane, take it away. All right. I, I would have to say the most epic train sequence that's ever been photographed in the history of celluloid is uh, Jesse James and Roger Deakins. So you have to watch that movie for inspiration. It's just absolutely incredible. And I remember sitting in the movie theater and just being in awe of this master of light. Brad Pitt is is standing on this massive pile of logs and he basically blocks the train from, from going anywhere and then his team goes in there and robs it. But you got to see the headlight gag. Now, Roger Deacon used what they call a mole tungsten par. It was a 5K par that he mounted to a top of an old steam engine to simulate this very bright light. And of course, the steam engine stops and all the steam bellows out from behind the steam engine. You know, the effects team pushes it up there and it creates this perfect back, you know, lit smoke that silhouettes Brad Pitt with his hat on top of these logs. I'm telling you, it's epic. You have to, you have to watch it. But if you are, most trains have three lights uh, on the diesel engine. Uh, one that's dead center, that's kind of uh, 
up just below the engineer's windows. And this one is kind of the, the high beam light that really streaks very, 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 very far ahead to see like animals and possible, you know, cars and all that stuff in the, in the very far distant. There's two other lights that are mounted on the left and right side, very low. And these are high beams that streak the track to make sure that there's not any debris, that the, like the switch has been thrown the correct way, any junk on the track, uh, any ties out of alignment, the, the engineer can be spotting this. And uh, these are what I've used in the past. On Need for Speed, we had a whole sequence with the train, which ended up when the guy blew the whistle is what started the race at Mount Kisco. So I was very up close and personal with the diesel engine and seeing all of this. Now, if you have an existing train that's going to be there to kind of help you pull this all off, then you will probably be pretty cool. You know, the lights on there are very bright and you'll be able to use that uh, very effectively and uh, it will create a nice over-the-shoulder shot and kind of flare you out and all that good stuff. If you do not have an engine and you are replicating an engine coming at the individual, then I've done this as well. I've taken like abandoned train tracks and I've built a train engine built out of black foam core uh, to create a silhouette. And uh, I've mounted uh, three ETC PAR cans. Um, whether you go uh, 750, 750 watt uh, HPL or 575 watt HPL, they you know, mounted two down low and one up high, and it simulates uh, a beautiful uh, train coming at your individual. And it's kind of silhouetted, so you don't really see the engine. And if you want to get really creative, you can even put some windows in the the uh, foam core cutout and backlight them with a little, you know, uh, LED uh, light, so it looks like there's uh, some something going on up there but you know you can get very creative on a on a very low budget to kind of simulate this uh, uh effect you know that really doesn't have to exist at all now obviously if you have a part in your scene where the person you know is standing in front of the the uh train and then he eventually gets on it and all that stuff well obviously you're going to have a train there and you're going to be all do all this stuff now I just want to stop and say that this is how Sarah Jones got killed. And she was a second assistant on a movie in Atlanta. And uh, working on train tracks is a very, very dangerous thing to do. We specifically on Need for Speed, Sarah Jones was killed four months prior to us getting on the train tracks and we got we could only get on train tracks that were controlled by a personal owner of the tracks so no other engine was able to go on it no other uh locomotive no other cargo train nothing it was the personal tracks of this individual so that was the only way we were able to pull this off. So I just want to mention this because if you're trying to steal these shots and you quote unquote think that this train track is not being used, you never know. And that's exactly what happened on that film and is exactly how Sarah Jones died. So I just want you to be very cautious and make sure you go through all the protocol on figuring out who controls the lines, if they are dormant, if you can be on them. It's, it's very dangerous because these trains are switched all the time. And just when you think this, nobody's ever seen a train on this track. And all of a sudden, you know, Sarah Jones is, is getting run over by one. 
So there you have it. Now, what I would do is I would, if you were creating this simulation, then you would obviously have uh, lay the dolly and the track and, and create this, this headlight gag that I described. You would put a little Honda 3000 watt generator on there, and that would be able to power up all your lights. I would put the lights all on Variax, so you're able to dim them down if you want to. If you want to keep the, the light hyper bright, hyper white, then I would have ND, neutral density gel, to be able to scrim them down. And then you can obviously tilt them up or tilt them down, depending on how much flare you want. But those are halogen lights, and they put off a very, very bright white light. And I think that'd be perfect for you and this shot. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Shane. And I just wanted to reiterate the importance of safety first uh, because that is so critical in out all of our inner circle shoots. Um, I know safety may seem boring uh, at times to people and like, oh man, let's just get the shot. But as Shane mentioned, you know, when a, when a real crisis happens, as with the case of Sarah Jones, um, there's no going back from that. So I just really want to hit the safety first. And that all is part of the pre-production process and the, and the very, very careful planning and taking the time to do that. So we're going to hit that a little bit more later on in the podcast, but I just wanted to hit that safety button. Okay, now we're going to move on to our time critical question that comes all the way from Australia. And this is a great question that has three parts, so bear with me. And it's coming to us from Josh in Australia. Hi, Shane and Lydia from Australia. I have a couple of quick questions. Number one, I'm currently being considered for the role of DP on my first low-budget feature. Would you have any recommendations on how to secure this role? So that's question number one. Question number two is, if I'm successful, what tips or recommendations would you have for a DP who's transitioning from low-budget commercial DP work with small crews? And the last question is the pre-production process. Okay, Shane, I'll let you dive in here. Okay, great. I'm currently being considered for the role of DP. And uh, what would you have as recommendations to secure this role? Well, one thing that I do that a lot of director photographies don't do is actually prepare for an interview. Um, this is something that is, I mean, I do so much preparation for this. I read the script two to three to four times. I think about what is wrong with the script, how we can possibly make it better, uh, almost uh, putting on your director's hat, you know, a little bit. So you're trying to help them kind of uh, see the maybe the holes that are there or, or what can be improved. So immediately the director is seeing, okay, this guy's got a great head on his shoulder. He's not just thinking about how he's going to light it and how he's He's going to shoot it, but he's thinking about the story. So this is very important. The other thing you want to do is, is um, I have a, a very expansive library of reference books that I always turn to. But now with the internet these days, you can basically go online and search anything and find incredible imagery. So I put together what I call a lookbook. And this lookbook is based on reading the script and coming up with the mood, the tone, the color, and the composition. So these are things that I, I put together and I take the director through this process. Basically, I mean, I come in there with a point of view. I tell them how I'm going to shoot their movie and I have visual references. Sometimes if there's something that I want to pull off that's, that, that's kind of hard to describe in pictures, I'll grab uh, videos of it examples from other films uh, so I can show him or her this idea. But yeah, I come in with very prepared and I always can tell, you know, the, that, that what I do is different because, you know, when you're going to interview for specific movies or TV shows, 
it's assembly line, right? The director has put himself at a at a location and you literally funnel in there every hour on the hour. He's meeting six or seven DPs a day along with production designers and, you know, they got them all scheduled. So I'm usually seeing the DP that was ahead of me come down the stairs or come out of the elevator and and uh, shake his or her hand. And, and uh, I usually notice that there's, they travel with nothing. They don't bring any, I usually bring my whole bag. I have still reference uh, photos, books. I have uh, video examples. I have a lookbook that's prepared in a keynote presentation on my laptop. So I come in with all guns blazing to secure the role. And so this is something that that I would say would be uh, a huge thing for for you to do. And especially, I'm going to dive in here, especially as you're starting out, because I think, you know, at Shane's level... Um, it's great to do it and it's still important to him to do it, but it really comes down to he's interviewing with an equal talent pool. So a lot of it's coming down to personality and what the director is responding to. I think especially in the beginning, you're needing to get that leg up and differentiate yourself from the herd if you will. And so it's more important than ever. And the other thing that I'd like to chime in about is mindset, because I think how you're going into this interview is so important because most likely if you're an inexperienced interviewer, um, it can be very intimidating and you can, you know, kind of make it worse for yourself by going in with a lot of insecurity. And not that, not that you want to be pompous in any way or arrogant, but I think it's very important to just kind of take the pressure off yourself and go in with as much confidence as you can. You know, you know that you have a belief in a project or script, that you want to shoot it, that, you know, you have prepared to the best of your ability for this interview and that you're just going to go in there and give it all you've got and not hold on to the fact of whether or not you get the job. And I was actually just talking with our daughter about this because our daughter Kira um, is in school right now for acting. And Shane and I are constantly saying about the importance of for her to go to as many auditions as possible to get the experience of auditioning. And whether or not she gets the role at this phase, I mean, she is literally just starting out and we're so proud of her, doesn't matter so much. What really matters is that she hones those interview skills. She gets so comfortable with the process of interviewing that it becomes second nature or, you know, um, going out for a role. It becomes second nature and she doesn't get in her own way by becoming nervous. Because remember, mindset is everything. So what you have to do inside your head, your job is the preparation to research the director and to know their body of work, to to know the actors on the project. I mean, you really got to do your research for this feature. And then to go in there with the greatest mindset and, and level of confidence without being arrogant that you can have to set yourself up for success. Yeah, and I also think uh, another thing you want to do is by reading the script, you want to come up with, I always try to come up with you know, ideas of, of what I want to do for the characters in regards to composition, in regards to lensing, in regards to the, the describing the look. Uh, also, five or six really cool shots that really, you know, popped out of your mind of reading it. So these are things that show the director that you're really into this project, that you're showing tons of passion. Passion is worth its weight in gold. And it's something that that uh, I always try to uh, exuberate is passion. Some people say I'm a little too passionate and too intense sometimes. But I, I absolutely love what I do. I can't believe that I 
I'm able to do what I do every day. I'm in Italy right now. Uh, Lydia is in Los Angeles. I'm in Italy. So we're doing this beautiful podcast, uh, recording it on two separate uh, devices to be able to share it with you. And I'm on a film that this this is what I dream to shoot. Uh, I love drama. I love character emotion. And I love lighting it and having the camera make the audience feel exactly what the characters are feeling and, and how I can do that and, and really take you on that emotional roller coaster uh, along, along with us. So, and yeah, go ahead, Shane, I just have to add, because I recently heard, I'm obsessed with um, National Public Radio, those who know me best. And I, and all I do is listen to podcasts because I love podcasting. And there was a podcast on Terry Gross's Fresh Air that was about the, or it was either that, I, I anyway, I'm sorry, I can't remember what podcast it was, but it was about the importance of play and how we don't play enough. We play when we're children, but we don't play as adults. And this really gets to the heart of being a DP because all the DPs that I know view their job as play. They love their job. They can't imagine doing anything else with their lives. And to them, it's not work. It really is like I get to go to work exactly as Shane's describing and play with these amazing individuals every day. And what a gift. And you absolutely know when you're in the right field because play promotes creativity and it promotes longevity. All of these things versus the nine to five clocking in. And I'm sorry, I'm going to pick on postal workers here, but clocking in, clocking out type of job versus what we all get to do with our lives. And so keep doing it, keep pushing yourself, keep playing, keep experimenting because it makes you live longer and it increases your creativity. So I just kind of wanted to throw that little plug for play in there. (laughs) No, I love that. All right. So uh, number two to this, if I'm successful, what tips or recommendations would you have for a DP who's transiting from a low transitioning from a low budget commercial DP work with small crews? Well, this is exactly what I did when I transitioned from kind of lower budget commercials, uh, music videos, and then I shot my first narrative work, the Rat Pack. So I I had no idea how to prep a feature. I knew how to prep a commercial and I knew how to prep a music video, but I didn't have any of the kind of pre-production process and understanding how to break down a script and all those things. I kind of, you know, figured it out, you know, so you know, transitioning from working with small crews, well, a lot of times, you know, your features are going to be small crews as well. I mean, you you might have, I'd say, you know, a couple more grips and a couple more electrics on your team and, and you will, you're going to have what we call a pre-rig team if you have a, a big enough budget so you're able to pre-cable and pre-rig and pre-light locations before uh, you get there. But these are things that, you know, I think communication is a big deal. It's like you communicating with production, tell you know, breaking down the script is is a big, big deal. And and now I look back to what I did and how I did it on the Rat Pack and how I do it now. My God, it's like literally night and day. So, you know, it's it's just being organized. It's uh, understanding, getting the one-line schedule from the from the assistant director starting to break down what gear you're going to need what cameras you're going to need what specialty gear when you're going to use the crane you know you just read the script and and ideas come out and whether you can afford them or not you don't want to care okay that's the first thing do not care what your budget is well initially Initially. Yes, initially. So you think completely out of the box. Every time I break down a script, I am not thinking about the budget. I'm not thinking about my crew size. I'm not thinking about anything other than I'm on a $250 million movie. Okay. Always. 
Because the reason doing this is you will eventually get crammed into the $2,500,000, $50,000, whatever budget you're working on. But some of those ideas that were the $250 million ideas end up getting crammed into that budgetary box. If you're only thinking within the budgetary box, you never have the grand vision and you never have the amazing aha shots or ideas that you would have if you didn't think big. So this is uh, one of the things that I do. You know, I go crazy with the script and everyone, you know, then production is like, Jesus Christ, Shane, what the <laughs> hell you think? We're made of money here. This is a $2 million movie. We can't have techno cranes all the time. And I'm like, okay, then let's select now that we have 30 techno crane days and we can only afford two, which ones are the best? So then you start to now you you've taken your big ideas and now you work with the director and saying, OK, and this is what I did on this Italian film. I had probably I'd say 17 days of Technocrane and it came down to they could only afford two days. So out of the 17 days. We had to figure out how to do it with a modular crane, with a fixed arm crane, with a jimmy jib, with a jib arm, with a high, high roller, whatever it was. We had to figure out, you know, a very ingenious way to get the shot, but not with the techno crane. So these are things that you want to be thinking about when you're transitioning, communicating with production putting together your wish list, then working with production to, you know, show them that you're thinking about the budget, then you're trying to work with them and get everything down, work with your vendors. You know, when I was doing the Rat Pack, I pulled so many favors because this was my first narrative picture. And I went to Panavision and I said, you got to help me out. And I went to Pascal Lighting and I'm like, you got to chuck this stuff in for free. And, you know, I did everything possible to try and stack the deck in my favor to to be able to get the the most uh, out of the project. And, and then can what do you I, got for this, Lydia? I was just, hey, you're reading my mind, Shane, all the way from Italy. Um, I think the biggest thing that I see, and again, I'm speaking as a non-DP here, but I observe uh, a lot. I don't miss much. And I think the biggest thing that I see the need for in pre-production and during the shoot and in post is taking all of those incredible ideas that you are continuing to generate in your head and communicating those out to your crew. Because yes, you need to communicate them with production, but I think also there's a seamless workflow for efficiency that has to happen with whatever size crew you have. And so many geniuses are horrible at getting the ideas out of their head and communicated well to others. And this is something that makes you a great leader because you can have all the ideas in the world, but unless you're an effective communicator, they're stuck and they're bottlenecked. So that's one huge part of the pre-production process is really getting your crew as on board as possible with your thought process for every single day. And the other thing is um, really honing your leadership ability and skills. A lot of what Shane does on a daily basis, and truthfully, a lot of what I do that you all don't see, is we're both leaders in our respective areas. Mine is much more in business and firing up our internal team and Shane's is on set and, and firing up his crew. But I think the more you can become a seasoned leader, and this comes with um, boots on the ground learning, reading as much as you can get your hands on about what being a good solid leader is, because you're, you know, you are leading this crew and you're responsible for them. Um, and you're responsible for showing up and giving your best every day as as a good leader. And, you know, your leadership growth happens over time. We all become much better leaders with age. But I think the more that you can also focus on leadership skills, it's very important. Don't you agree, Shane? 
Absolutely. And uh, moving on to number three of this question, uh, what is your pre-production process? Well, we have a couple uh, pre-production uh, courses inside the inner circle right now. I'm not sure, Josh, when you have become a member, but one is it takes you through the process of how I break down a script. And that process is one that's all about writing these ideas out. And, and I literally embed the ideas in the script. And there's a, there's a great video on that uh, within the store that you can grab if you don't have it already, or you can watch it um, if you already have this. But it really takes you through how I break down a script and what I'm looking for and what, what, what's, what things you know are going to respond to the director and, and shot listing. And, uh, you know, you're, you're making your, the movie and you're sending these ideas out to the director because you want to see if he or she is in the same mindset. You know, you've had the initial meetings, you've been hired. Now let's, uh, let's get really seriously creative on this. And just, I see it as like a shot over the bow, right? Uh, I start blasting out my ideas and see what he or she responds to. And then based on, you know, the initial, you know, sending of, because you, you, I go through how I embed it in the script and everything and a PDF, and then you send it to him or her, and they comment on it, and they can add that in a different color, and you're off to the races. You know, selecting your aspect ratio, I go into in this pre-production module as well, because aspect ratio, everything, you know, I know... 90% of this group is so jacked up on anamorphic lenses. And I just have to tell you that I've never shot an anamorphic feature in my whole career. And the reason why is because it distances you from the character more than anything. So, you know, for everyone that wants anamorphic, I will be right there with a spherical piece of glass sticking that thing right in the meat of it. So you feel immersed and uh, ever present with with your characters. So, but you know whether you're doing two three five, whether you're doing one eight five, whether you're doing one seven eight HD for television, whatever that aspect ratio is, there's a whole methodology of what is going to be the best for your story, the best for your characters. Uh, so you want to talk that through with your director as well. Um, the other thing is, is just going into, you know, the organizing your gear and, uh, what, what camera you think you should shoot it on, making sure you're doing tests and involving the director in these tests and, and whether you're testing lenses, whether you're testing a specific lighting style, you know, whether you're, you're, you're doing war, wardrobe hair, makeup tests, what, whatever that is, whether you're designing LUTs, uh, it's very important for you to do these tests and pre-production so you can kind of, um, show people exactly what the movie is going to look like. I agree. And I just wanted to add that pre-production is something that we are going to continue to discuss within the inner circle. Um, as you could see, we could go on this topic for days. And yeah. um, for the our 2018 content, um, Shane and I have the different various pieces of pre-production um, as a very high on our list because we keep being asked this by a variety of members. So this is going to be a continuing ongoing dialogue. I think that we've yes. kind of hit different areas right here. But um, so Josh, I hope we've answered your question and we're going to move on to Stuart now. Question number three, um, and I'm going to take this one, ha, uh, <laughs> on histograms. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this, this says, Shane and Lydia, thanks for all your work with SIC. Having such an in-depth resource at my fingertips has really helped my game, and I'm sure many would agree it has helped theirs. Well, thank you, Stuart. We really appreciate that. My question with so many tools at our disposal today, false color, histograms, meters, etc., I wondered if you had 
a go-to routine when it comes to lighting your sets. I see it with your light meter and then you use false color. Is this just checking and double checking and dialing in everything as much as you can before cameras roll? Or do you favor one more than the other these days? Do you think the light meter is still relevant today with the digital tools built into cameras, et cetera? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the good work. All right, Lydia, this is all yours. <laughs> Everybody's going to get really frightened right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So basically what I do is the meter is something that, um, you know, I I carry with me uh, a lot on scouts. Like I'll go and like we were in a boat, right? So we were in this ferry. Well, I wanted to know what the hell was coming through those windows. I just wanted to know exposure-wise if I was at 800 ISO and what do I have in there? Okay, I had a two eight and a half. All right, well, shit, there's not much light coming through these windows. Okay, I'm going to have to beef this up, right? So there's that where I use a light meter. There's no false color or histogram that can tell you that because you don't have your camera with you a lot of the times when you're doing these location scouts or tech scouts, unless you want to be able to drag your red or your Alexa along with you and your Flanders monitor. But whatever the case may be, I use my meter a lot in that regards. I also use my meter when we're going so fast that I can't even think about looking at a monitor or I'm out where we just don't have the ability to get a monitor, then I just go with my meter. And I know exposing it is going to be, you know, I'm going to get it in the pocket. And I know that with the raw file, I'll be able to manipulate it. I use my eye more than anything, I have to say. I mean, the false color is there. The histogram is there. The LUT is there. But when it all comes down to it, I'm using my eye. And if the face is looking beautiful, I'm not going in there and seeing what IRE value that face is. If I want it to glow a little more, I'm letting it glow. I'm not saying, oh my God, her face is in the 80 to 90 IRE. Well, then the face is in the 90, 80 to 90 IRE. I'm going for it because it's what looks good to the eye. So, so much is, is where I is, is just doing the eye. The false color is a beautiful tool to just check. A lot of times, like I'll see, like yesterday, we had this scene where I came out of a, out of the interior of this huge villa and I panned and it was in like a, an overhang porch scenario, but the sun was coming in and hitting the uh, beating the bejesus out of this white stucco and it was clipping for sure and i looked at my you know false color and sure enough it was just white so i knew that was gone so i knew i had to put the exposure down to a place where i could hold that now when i did that it became very dark so based on that i had to get a 12 by 12 ultra math bounce so i could boof blast some light underneath this porch over overhead port or the overhanging porch scenario so i could bring up the level so it wasn't so dark so i could was able to hold the highlights so i use the false color as a as a reference to you know check on but most of it is with my eye and then i'm bringing out my meter for specific situations for knowing what the exposure is. Now, the meter is very important to create your book of light. And you're going to say, what the hell is a book of light? Well, the book of light is this book that I have, and it's usually, uh, you know, like one of those um, books. What the heck are those things, Lydia, the, that are black and white speckles? What, what are those things? What, uh, what are those books? Black and white speckled. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like a cosmo. What, you mean whatever that you draw in? I'm sorry, I'm trying to follow your shape. It's like a notebook that's all bound together. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, composition it's composition like notebook. Yeah, yeah, composition <laughs> notebook. There you go. So it's a composition notebook, and I basically write the scene, and I will do some rudimentary stick figure ass drawing of what I lit. 
very uh, simple. And I'll go in there and I'll take the lighting ratios of what the key light was, what the fill light was, what the backlight was, and then I'll write the color temperatures down as well. This is my book of light. And a lot of times Poe does it. A lot of times my gaffer does it. Sometimes my second assistants do it. Uh, it all depends on who and wh uh, which person is up for the challenge because the book of light gets really big very fast. Like yesterday, we did 12 scenes. They were these small little junkets of, okay, we do a sunset shot and they walk down the stairs and walk out the house. And okay, now we're doing a night exterior. Then we're doing, you know, it's like all these different scenes and every one of them, you have to log into your book of light. Uh, that's where I use the meter because there's a lot of times where I haven't done this and all of a sudden they say, hey, Shane, the movie is testing really well, but they're unsure of this and they're unsure of that. And we want to go back and uh, we need to do some reshoots. Well, when you go in and back and try to do and match the light on a mock-up set that wasn't the exact location, uh, you're creating these things on a soundstage when it was somewhere in Atlanta or somewhere in New Orleans or, or Italy. And you're being asked to match light levels. Well, for you to get it very close and easy, I mean, yes, you can watch a video and you can see what your camera was set at and all that stuff and know those kind of things. But ratios are a very big deal. And it's hard to match that if you don't take these light meter readings. So that's where my light meter comes into play uh, as well. So well, that's, that's, that's all I have for that one, Lydia. <laughs> okay, Shane, I think that was awesome. And I learned a lot. I always learn a lot. Okay, question number four. Hi, Shane and Lydia. Love the inner circle and all that you're doing for filmmakers without mentioning names or getting political here with the current landscape of the industry. What are your thoughts on the latest upheaval that's going on in Hollywood and how can we move forward and help make the future better for everyone? And this comes from Christoph. Okay, Christoph, I'm going to take this question, Shane, because I really love it. And I think it's great that people are asking about the future, because I think so much of the time we spend our time in ruminating on the awfulness of what a Harvey Weinstein has done or anybody else. And, you know, that doesn't really help us with answers moving forward and help implement change. So I'm all about change and making it better for women um, the first thing that I would say that we could do is not tolerate uh, any sort of awfulness or impropriety or um, really calling it out. And, you know, again, I had a dialogue with our daughter, Kira, that I want to share because I think it's so critically important, whether you're an actor, whether you are a you know, behind the scene camera person. Um, it's all of our responsibility not to be complicit and not to just witness something that makes you uncomfortable and not call it out. And this takes an enormous amount of courage. But what really bothered me and what I think that we need to look at, because I read the article in The New Yorker, and I think the most disturbing thing about it all was not only the perpetrator. And again, I used to, I'm a former sexual assault nurse examiner. So I, I always look at everything from a forensic standpoint, right? So there's the issue of power and control. But what really bothered me about this was the way that the women interpreted the situation as one would interpret it. So I'm not coming down on women at all. I'm just saying they interpreted it as very specifically from an actor perspective that their careers were over if they did not somehow either, you know, not do what was asked of them or they were frozen in the situation because their brains went into a space where they couldn't move or, you know, they they didn't have the normal reaction because their brain viewed it 
as, you know, if I don't go along with this, then my entire career is over, that I will never work again, that, you know, I have no future as an actor. And I think that that was the piece that bothered me the most. It wasn't, you know, um, how the women didn't do whatever they should have done, because that's a judgment call. And nobody, until you're in that situation, you can never understand what it's like or say, well, oh, they should have done this or that. So what I'm saying that we need to focus on is our reaction into, A, we're not tolerating it. And if you see it, you're not going to just ignore it and kind of shoot it under the rug. And you're going to support the person and you're going to call it out for what it is. It's inappropriate. It's making so-and-so uncomfortable, right? And it's not like you need to get into a heated argument. I think it's as simple as, hey, wow, you know, Sue looks uncomfortable. What's going on? And sometimes it's just as simple as asking a question and interjecting something into that uncomfortable dialogue. And again, that takes a lot of courage because everybody's worried that they're going to ruin their careers and they're never going to get hired again right? And I think for women, it's very specifically, it's really understanding, and this is the conversation with my daughter, that this is not the last role, that this is not your last opportunity. And it's the manipulation of the perpetrator doing these crimes to make you think that. And that is what is so evil, is that they have your brain convinced that this is, you know, you will never work again. And so uh, my conversation with Kira is no job is ever worth, ever worth, or no interview is ever worth, or no, no situation is ever worth. You're compromising yourself and potentially getting abused. And those are very difficult conversations to have. But I think the more that we work on this and the more that we bring into light what is going on, it's kind of like in the alcoholic household, you know how you cover up for people and you you make up stories and you make excuses and you do all these things until one day somebody can't stand it anymore and they're like, hey, you know, dad's an alcoholic and I've covered up for him for X number of years. It's a very similar power and control issue here. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we don't tolerate it. And the more that we support individuals that have either gone through it without blame, without the, you know, you should have, could have, would have, just supporting them and say, you know what, you didn't deserve it. I'm so sad that happened to you. And what can I do on this shoot to make it better for you, to make you feel supported? Right. And then from from all of our lenses, you know, really standing up for yourself and knowing what your intention is. You know, you're going in to do the best job, male or female, that you can do on set to tell the story, to, you know, have the character be the the best character that they can be as the actor to as a director to be the best leader that you can be and leaders don't good leaders don't tolerate any sort of abuse. So that's kind of my lens. Shane, do you have anything else that you want to add there? Well, I think that the big thing here is really to not think that one person or one thing is going to control your destiny. And uh, a lot of times, I mean, you have to make choices in your life. And like Lydia said, we're not going to analyze why this actress chose to do this or why this person chose to do that. Uh, At that point in their career, maybe this is exactly what they had to do, you know, and but it doesn't make any of it right. And it doesn't make anything correct in this process of anyone pushing you, um, exemplifying this kind of power over you. Um, and you know, it's, I, I have to say that I feel this is sent a shockwave through our industry 
And uh, when I got that announcement from the Academy that uh, Harvey Weinstein was kicked out of it, I was like, wow, this is going deep, you know, because he, he lost all his supporters uh, in, in, a, in a very, very quick kind of, uh, you know, hurricane force. So, you know, I think that I think, you know, the end of your question is how can we make move forward and help make the future better for everyone? And I think it's just, you know, how about being great human beings and not leveraging things to get what you want and having compassion in the world and helping each other out and sharing knowledge and and just uh just being a, a good human being and and not uh not you know like one thing that Liddy always comes to me about words matter and a lot of times I find myself going Jesus what the hell is this person thinking and then I think to myself okay words matter okay obviously something's going on right now with this person that he can't do this or can't do that. And I'm going to try to challenge my patients and wait till he or she responds uh, before I jump all over their ass. Uh, so it's like these are the kind of things that uh, your words matter and uh, you have to choose them wisely. Exactly, Shane. And now we're going on to question number five, which is about women in film, which is very close and dear to my heart. Hello, Shane and Lydia. I really enjoyed the last podcast and the parts about women in film as I am entering the field as a woman. I, what I'd like to know is what to look out for and how to assert myself but still be one of the guys, if that makes sense. Is it better if I seek out other women to work with, or how do I go about making sure that I'm treated the same as my peers, which are mostly men? Any tips and guidance is appreciated. Well, what I have to say is that. Um, as a woman and as a woman that has been on the periphery of the film industry, I think women traditionally have kind of tried to morph themselves into men to kind of fit in on set to enhance their masculine characteristics, if you will, just as women in business have done the same thing where they you know, they've, they've tried to really bring out those male parts of their personality. And when women assert themselves, and this is, this is really true, they're seen as bitchy or bitches or, you know, having an ax to grind or something like that, instead of just seeing it as, hey, wow, she's really asserting herself in that moment. And so what I would say is, that um, you are a female on set or you're a male on set. But the bottom line is the gender doesn't matter on set. What matters is that you're a filmmaker. You're a filmmaker in your being, in your core. And it should be about your talent and not about are you a man or are you a woman? And so, and it's really hiring the best and most talented human being for the job. So that if you're in a position of hiring other filmmakers, please keep that in mind. And if you're in the position of going up for the job, um, what you need to do is just be yourself. Be yourself, have the greatest elements of yourself come out and have your talent come out. I mean, it's really a level of comfort in your own skin. And, you know, Maya Angelou, who is one of my favorite all-time human beings that has ever walked this planet, um, and really a huge mentor of mine, when she entered a room, she had such a presence in her skin. She was so self-possessed. And it was just a natural confidence. And she really <laughs> didn't care what other people thought of her. She was there, you know, to share her gifts. And I think that we really need to look to that, right? It's about sharing your gifts with the world. And so it's not about, are you only going to work with women? Are you only going to work with men? Or what crews do you work with? You need to just go about being the best filmmaker that you can be. Shane, what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, here, here's the one thing I really want to say about this. And, you know, I'm a huge supporter of women in film. And, and uh, you know, it's women have a unique mindset. Let's just cut to the chase. Uh, the best seconds that I've ever had are women. They can multitask. They can do six and seven different jobs absolutely efficiently more than we the the guys can do it they're much more organized i mean look at my assistant po chan she is unbelievably organized she has she knows everything you know dots every i crosses every t you know multitasking on this movie she's operating cameras she's you know um deciding what LUTs we're choosing. She's going out there and seeing a electrical cord that's in the shot or a piece of tape. She's, you know, arranging the whole crew schedule and equipment and uh, what C camera days, what B camera days, what underwater, you know, all this stuff, as well as she's running all my comm system throughout the whole home, throughout every location. So my team and I can communicate very quickly and efficiently. Okay, there's not many guys I know that can do that. So it's like what I think is what Lydia said was is very true. But the best thing is to just not only be yourself, but use the God given talent of the female mind to really kick some ass and take some names. Because I have this, my second AC that was in uh, Prague, uh, the Czech Republic, is probably one of the best I've ever had. And that was Teresa Vakova. And she, I think it was like her, well, she had never been a second before. And we brought her, you know, basically delivered that to her based on her understanding English and Czech so we could communicate. So she became a pipeline of communication to the whole crew, as well as being incredibly organized, all buttoned up, having everything dialed in. I mean, she was uh, a powerhouse. And I think that women are going to rise in this business uh, to all new heights that they never have before, because I think so many are are having a voice and giving the ability to get into this business that is so damnly male dominated. But I will say, Shane, women have been treated so badly, especially on the crew level, and I just I'm not bringing it up to bring up. To bring up negativity into the conversation, I just want to acknowledge how hard a road that women have had. And no, I, absolutely. You have to work 10 times as hard as the guy. As the guy. And I think that women need to be put in positions of power in order to implement change. And so what I would say, um, and I'm sorry, I don't have a name for this um, inner circle member who asked the question. Um, I think it's really trying to get yourself positioned into a power position as quickly as you can, because I don't want to underestimate how difficult it is for you or how um, how hard you have worked to get where you are. I think the backlash that we've seen from women is that women then only hire all-female crews and crew up only with women because they're like, screw the guys, you know, we're going to make this all female and do it our way. And it is my, and, and I understand that backlash. I really do. And, and it's my hope as far as the future moving forward, that there can be a merging of great talent that women can get into positions of power to implement great change and much needed change for this very male dominated film business. And the men currently in positions of power will really recognize what has happened, what the past is, and make significant changes moving forward. And I think that we're starting to see this a little bit in terms of um, the men who were complicit in a variety 
of ways are now calling themselves out and and feeling a huge amount of shame for not standing up, not saying anything, not helping women more. Um, and I, I think if there's one thing that men can do is, you know, you can really give women a leg up, give them an opportunity to, to exactly showcase My themselves, God. you know, exactly. It's like, give them a chance. And I'm telling you, they are going to deliver in spades. And uh, it's something that I've tried to do uh, throughout my career, and I continue to do it through our mentorship program for female filmmakers. And you know, we will that we will continue to do um, until I take my last breath. Better believe it, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I chose carefully when I married. Okay, we All are right. moving on to the next to the next question. Question number six, and. Um, Sadly, Shane, we are at time, so we've got to uh, we've we've got a really zippy. Let's do. not answer six. Let's go right to seven. Okay, so we're going to come back to six on the next podcast, and we'll take a note of that. Um, the last question that we have, because boy, this hour has flown by. Hello, as an SIC newbie, I am an SIC newbie, and wanted to see if you have a page with all the past podcast episodes. Also, can I download them with the iOS podcast app? And this comes from Benny. And Benny, I just want to chance, take a chance to welcome you as a newbie. We're really thrilled to have you. And just one thing, I love this community so much. And honestly, one of my favorite things to do in the whole entire world is podcasting. And this hour that we all spend with you is so special to me. I look forward to it every single month. Um, and I want, and I know Shane does too, and I want you all to hear that. It, it really comes with all the love in the world. So Shane, um, I would like you to talk about past podcast episodes. You can take the rest of this one, but I just had to share that. Yeah. Absolutely, Lydia. So, Benny, uh, here's with our new store design, we wanted to uh, kind of bring all the the products up for people that did not want membership, that just wanted to buy. Uh, so they, you see all that there. But if you go to the store content area in the menu and you'll see archives. And when you click on archives, it basically will deliver everything that we've ever created within the inner circle. And every podcast is labeled EP1 all the way to EP39, which we're doing today. So you will uh, be able to scroll through those and be able to uh, grab them. Um, we've made them, we've priced them incredibly inexpensive. And I have to say, if there would be anything that's very powerful about the inner circle, it's the podcast. Because I, both Lydia and I go into very in-depth on all our members' questions, and we kind of try to take time-sensitive ones and address them as quickly as we can. And it's great to get the yin and the yang of the uh, movie business. And uh, we have so much fun. Sides. Right. We have so much fun doing it together. I mean, I think that that's the, I've really joined the podcast uh, this year and thrown myself into it. And I'm stretching myself because I, I'm not a filmmaker in terms of I haven't gone to film school. I don't have the knowledge that Shane does, but I, I definitely bring the lifestyle piece and that perspective and the mindset and the leadership. And so it's been super fun. I've really enjoyed it. So all Inner Circle members, if you have questions for me, please don't forget about me. I am here next to Shane every <laughs> single month. And so please shoot me some questions. Um, lastly, I just want to put a shout out to two members on our team. Um, Brendan Sweeney edits every single podcast for us. And he does an extraordinary job. He is up to the bar on the podcast since we originally started doing them. And Sweeney, He's he's an extraordinary budding director and filmmaker. 
and DP in his own right. And we're so grateful to have his talent um, editing these podcasts. And he has a lot of ideas for us, which he shares along with Julie on our team. And then actually the third person that I need to acknowledge. So Sweeney and Julie put together your questions every single month for us so that we stay on track. We don't repeat all of those details. Um, Ben Richardson, who's in charge of, he's our content uh, creative director and um, just he's he's been extraordinary. So I just every once in a while, I want to acknowledge the team because you hear from us, but there's so many people working behind the scenes, making all of this possible, and we could not do it without them. Absolutely. And uh, finally, Benny, uh, you asked if you could put it on the iOS podcast app. I'm not the most tech wizard on all that kind of stuff, but uh, I know that you can grab it because we have it as a as a file in there and you can uh, put it on to your your iPhone or Android or whatever. So I know you can save it and and be able to put it on to your iPhone or or Android so you can take it with you because people talk about listening to the podcast while they're driving. um, So I know that is possible. All right. Well, that concludes our podcast number 39 uh, for the inner circle. And again, I want to reiterate to continue to submit these questions. And like Lydia said, mark them time sensitive. If we uh, need to jump on them uh, quickly, we get a ton of questions and we love them very much. And we cannot wait to answer them uh, every month. And, And I do Love this uh, time with all of you. Okay, so have a great fall, everybody. Uh, and we can't, we're going to be together next month, which is so exciting. Yay! Yes. We get to sit by each other doing the podcast. So I can't wait. So in a I few know. weeks, Shane and I are back together. All right. Happy Halloween, everyone. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye bye. What helps you become a better filmmaker? Knowledge, practice, consistency. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. If you want your questions answered, join us at shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.